Hello and welcome to episode 99 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco and thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. Um, if you are joining us on the 99th episode... What an episode to start, I tell you. That's a what bold, an episode a to bold start, number to start with. There is still time to go and catch up with the other 98 episodes where we've spoken to some great authors, screenwriters, comic writers, video game writers, journalists. So um, please do go and check the back catalogue if you haven't done that already. We are obviously very excited to be uh, almost at our 100th episode and we're going to chat a bit more about that after this week's interview with the brilliant Anna Matsola. Absolutely. She's a fantastic writer. She's a lawyer, much like ourselves. She um, writes kind of historical crime fiction. Uh, her first novel was The Unseeing, which was very well received. It won an Edgar Award in the US. It was nominated for various awards in the UK. Um, and her latest novel is The Clockwork Girl, which has just come out today, time of recording, actually. So it's available yeah. now. And we would definitely recommend you go, and, you go and grab it. It's set in 18th century Paris. Uh, and yeah, it's a kind of historical, crimey, a little bit of fantasy in there as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a sort of there's there's hints of uh, this sort of supernatural or magic yeah. around it as well. Which it, and and we actually talked to Anna a bit about you know I feel especially with historical fiction, the setting is so important. It's yeah, almost a yeah. character in and of itself, and uh, she's very good at, at creating these settings in her in her novels. And she also talks to us about. Yeah, I, I sort of mentioned in the interview that most lawyers turned authors write legal thrillers, which she doesn't. But in fact, <laughs> we find out that she is working on a legal thriller as well. So, um, yeah, exactly. So we, we we talked to her about that as well, and and much much more as well. It's a, it's a great fun, yeah, uh, really fun interview. Yeah. So we'll get straight into after a quick advert for a writer's notebook, and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat, and of course to let you know about our special 100th episode 100 episode spectacular fantastic but for now on with the podcast the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head so how to overcome that fear well we all know the best advice for a writer is write seriously get words on the page and more will follow but what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. 
It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Because you, like Tarek and myself, um, also have a different career in the law as well. So how how do you... How, well, what did you want to do and how do you juggle the two of them? Well, I didn't always want to be a lawyer. That's what I didn't money. What I really want to be is a... But not actually, I didn't... I mean, I've always loved books, you know, like most writers and I'm sure like you guys... I, you know, started reading at quite a young age and, and sort of found the magic of books quite early. But I didn't always want to be a writer. In fact, I wanted to be a ballerina. So that really has okay. gone quite badly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> ballerina or an actor were the things I wanted to be. And I don't seem to have achieved either of those things. I mean, I did start, I did start writing quite young. I, in fact, found my first foray into crime fiction, which I wrote, I think, age seven or eight. Nice. Called the kidnap of Lucy, and it's about um, a, a baby that goes missing. Well, it's quite dark it, for seven-year-olds. It's pretty dark, and I gave it to my mum on Mother's Day. Now, Lucy <laughs> was actually my sister's middle, <laughs> so it was clearly about my baby sister and me wanting her to disappear. So uh, yeah, so I started writing quite early, but I didn't kind of get. I sort of didn't know any writers, and I didn't it sort of didn't occur to me that I myself might be a writer, even though I actually, I went on to study English at university. But even then I didn't think that's a valid career that I mm. can do. It's funny when I remember being that kind of coming up school age and you know, you're like, well, what am I going to do after school? And there seems to be like five jobs. You get like, you've got like lawyer, dentist, teacher, doctor, and it's just hard to think of what to do. And like, there's a like hundred billion jobs out there. You never think of of any of them until you re- hear about them, and it's too late. And then writing, yeah, it's number one. It's one of these things that you never. I never thought we could be, could be a viable career at that age for some reason. It seemed too like it seemed like an act of being like, oh, if you get lucky, you'll get, you'll make money off it and you'll live off it. But it's not a really you can't bank on it. It's, it's not something job you can your parents encourage you to do. No, exactly. Yeah, no, but it wasn't even sort of something I thought I could do somehow. It wasn't. I kind of loved books, but I never thought, yes, I can write a book. That's something I can do. Um, yeah, it's it's peculiar, isn't it? And obviously, you go to careers fairs, and there are <laughs> yeah, no also writer saying, "Come <laughs> join our lucrative career." And yeah, exactly. There's none of that. Um, I wanted to be a journalist actually to start off with. When I left university, I thought I would be a journalist, and um, then I realised how little you got paid. Um, and I was also quite because I I was working in a local paper as a court reporter, and that's how I got interested in right. law. Okay, realised that trials are you know generally pretty interesting, so that's why I started um, training to become a lawyer. Um, and yeah, I actually only started writing when my son was born, so when I was on maternity leave, so I had a bit more time because, as you guys know, when you're working full time as a lawyer, you don't really have very much time for anything else. It was only then really that I started thinking, oh, maybe I'll have a go. Yep. And I suppose like in a way, you know, lawyers are kind of telling stories, aren't they? They're kind of, they're telling stories 
the client stories to the court or a jury, etc. You know, like there is an element of putting a narrative into documents and to pulling together a story from what you're reading and what you're hearing and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. There's kind of, you know, you're taught to be analytical and to pull documents apart and to work out what's true and what isn't and what, um, and and you're right, how you construct a story that's going to be attractive and will Mm -hmm. succeed. So in in one way, yes, I suppose that may explain in part why there are so many of us, (laughs) both lawyers and writers, um, because there are an awful lot of us, but that sort of but also probably the desire to escape the law. Yeah, I think, I think there's definitely that element to it as well. You no, know, you do do writing and, and analysing, but it's generally pretty dry stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really creative. I mean, it was interesting going back to it, so I took a bit of time off to, you know, when I got a book deal. And then when I went back into it and to drafting instructions to counsel it, you realise how bizarre and archaic the language of yeah. law I always remember being in a, a lecture in, in the diploma, which is the uh, what you do after you got your degree, you do a year yeah. of diploma before traineeship in Scotland. And um, a, 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 it was a lawyer who's now a temporary sheriff, a sheriff now, I think. But he came in and at one stage he said, uh, you know, and I told everyone, yeah, what I really want to do is be a writer and stuff. And he was teaching us about pleadings and stuff. And he said, if you want to, if you do, it's not here to tell a story. If you want to tell a story, you're in the wrong job. And I, was, <laughs> I just sort of looked around and go, great. <laughs> Oops. But you're slightly unusual, I would say, as a lawyer turned writer in that um, your books don't, you know, the the common thing for uh, a lawyer turned writer is to write a legal thriller. You yes, know, that's what I'm the... writing now. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to set you up as something different, but you've no, got you're to... right. I am. I am writing a legal thriller, but I'm also writing. I'm still writing historical as well. Yeah, nice, nice. So, I mean, was it the unseeing that you worked on when you were on maternity leave? Was that? Yeah, so basically I started off, um, I signed up on a short story course and I started writing short stories. And one of the short stories I wrote was based on this case of this woman um, who'd been convicted of aiding and abetting a murder in Camberwell, which is where I live. And I became, in a geeky lawyer way, totally fascinated with the case and went through all of the Old Bailey records and the magistrate's records. Um, and so that, that I st- and I wrote a short story arising from that. And that was what went on to become the unseeing. So you're right. I didn't really do the the, the usual thing of writing a legal thriller, but in in a way, it is a legal story mm-hmm. in that it's based on a real case from 1837. Um, but it isn't, you know, it's not a courtroom thriller. Although I was remembering that when I was first um, submitting my manuscript to agents. Um, the, the novel originally started with the trial and it was it was my agent Juliet Mushins who took me aside and basically said look lawyers might find this interesting no one else wants to read about the trial right at the beginning of the book so um yeah so it turns out not everyone loves law how weird <laughs> that's interesting though so so you got the agent you got Juliet rep- to represent you on the basis of the manuscript that then was obviously changed quite a lot yes. after that. Yeah. So she, yeah, she, she was great and took me on, even though she recognized that the, the novel needed quite a lot of work. Um, and yeah, then I rewrote it, which is a very good editor. I rewrote it with her suggestions really to make it more of a kind of twisty, 
crimey type of mm -hmm. book rather than I think I started off thinking I was Margaret Atwood writing Alias Grace, but sadly it turns out I'm not Margaret Atwood. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, I, I took it away further from the real story of the case, which it turned out wasn't that interesting in some respects uh, and sort of made it fit sort of more with crime genre, which was what was required. And how was that process of finding an agent? Was that quite a long, a long journey or did you find one fairly quickly? I'm, and I was lucky in that I I was picked up relatively quickly, but I think it was I do think it was luck, as is as are most things in writing. So what happened was I I wrote the novel largely while I was doing a course at City University called the Novel Studio. So I would go along in the evenings and we would workshop the novel, and I found that really helpful in terms of. Um, you know, understanding how to edit a book and receive feedback as well. And I think that's kind of something that mm -hmm. all writers need to learn. Um, so, and then a part of the novel studio process, at the end of it, we submitted an anthology to various lit literary agents. Um, and as a result of that, I got quite a few literary agents contacting me and wanting to see the first three chapters and then the full manuscript. Um, and I was lucky to have a few of them interested, but Juliet was the one who... I knew as soon as I met her that she, you know, she knew what to do with the book. She reckoned she could sell it. Um, so I think I was very lucky that I got picked up so quickly. But part of the reason she picked me up when she did was because she just have, had massive, massive success with The Miniaturist by Jesse Burton, yeah. which mm -hmm. we didn't know about. So she was on the lookout for another historical novelist. Um, and therefore, she was willing to sort of put the time in on the book, even though she recognised it needed quite a bit of work. You know, perhaps if I'd submitted to her six months previously, she wouldn't have, you know, mm. given it. So I do, I do think, because I know how depressing the submissions process can be and how hard, I mean, I have, you know, so many friends who I consider to be very talented writers who have not managed to get an agent or have not managed to get a publishing deal. And I think it is largely to do with, you know, those elements of luck and keeping trying and and finding someone who is looking for, for what in particular you are writing and reckons they know what to do with it. And that is, I mean, I think I got lucky in that respect. I don't think I've always been lucky in my writing career, but I think I was in finding in finding an agent. I, th I think that's definitely right. And, it, it, you know, past guests have said the same thing, that there is, obviously the writing needs to be good, uh, to begin with but there is a massive element of luck and timing and it, it just does the does that manuscript cross that person's desk mm -hmm. when they're in the mood for that type of story essentially it, it's mad that it comes down to that but it does seem to be um as simple as that yeah it is I mean, it's, I mean you're absolutely right it's to do with the writing as well you have to have written a good book and mm -hmm. you have to finish the book and I think a lot you know yeah. that itself is a big is a big ask to actually finish a book when you're probably doing another job and looking after kids or whatever is, you know, a big ask on anyone and anyone who does achieve that, I think has done incredibly well. But then after that, you've got to keep submitting and sort of keep the faith and hope that you will find someone who can see what to do with your book and see where it sits in the market. Because I mean, that's one of, been one of the hardest things for me to get used to is, is the fact that, you know, book publishing is a business and, mm -hmm. That sounds kind of obvious, but I, I don't think I really understood that properly when my first novel was published. And I, you know, found it difficult and quite personal when, you know, money wasn't put behind my yeah. book and so on and so forth. But it, you know, they, they work out which books they're going to push and which ones they're not going to push. And unfortunately, you have very little say over that. Uh, yeah. And also trying to work out 
as, as you kind of you kind of brushed on uh, at the start, like what genre your book falls into. You know, it's often you see the book you're working on is one genre, mm-hmm. and then other people say actually that's more like a crime novel. That's or that's a that's more that's not a, that's a sci-fi or it's not really fantasy, and it kind of falls between. Or, or I suppose the worst ones are the ones that for me fall between genres within or they're, they're not easy to pigeonhole and stuff because yeah. as you say publishers do like to have that mass they, or mass that kind of label they can just pin to it and say this is a sci-fi book this is a yeah. fantasy book and, and and they don't know what to do with these strange books that don't really fit a mold no you're absolutely right and i was very lucky because i changed publisher for my third book the clockwork girl and um i was very lucky that orion really sort of saw how to relaunch me and understood what it was because i had actually had experience of of other people saying, well, I'm not quite sure what this is. Is it crime? Mm-hmm. Is it gothic? Mm-hmm. Is it because it's got some slightly magical elements and I don't understand what it is? Because you're right, I think, and that goes down to it being a business. Like you know, they have to think this is this is who the audience is, um, this is how we sell it, this is how we reach the people who are going to pay for it. So that yeah, they, it is easier if you can slap a label on something. I understand, unfortunately. I don't think I write books that fit very neatly within any particular genre. I think um, maybe that, that makes them more it, interesting books, wasn't it? I suppose I, I think so. And also, it, there's a there is an element of you know it, it's difficult to break out in any way in, when that is the sort of monolithic mm-hmm. approach that, that the public. Obviously, there are exceptions, but it's the same with Hollywood. Have suddenly been surprised that films made by black directors and with black actors make lots of money which the you know previously in years before they they never attempted to make them so there there are audiences out there for these things and sometimes you know as a writer i imagine it can be frustrating that people won't take a chance on it and won't try and push something a bit different to people yeah no absolutely that's why i feel like i feel like you know I have got lucky with my current team at Orion. They do seem to, you know, who knows? I mean, it hasn't come out yet. It might flop terribly. (laughs) They seem to to know what they're doing and they seem to know who they're, you know, and they've come up with a beautiful cover and, you know, they they seem to be doing all the right things. Um, But, you know, as as with everything in this industry, it is also to do with luck. It depends what else happens to be out in the week you're published, what else is happening, um, you know, so it's I, I, a, a large part of what we do is just we just I think be aware of what the market is, yeah. but you also have to write what you want to write, and you have to you know find something that you love and stick at it because most of us aren't going to make a huge amount of money out of this process, so we do have to do it because we really enjoy doing it. And I do, you know, although I tend to moan about writing, I do really love writing what I love. And I do particularly love writing historical and getting sort of immersed in that world um, and creating that sort of creepy atmosphere. So, I mean, I think I'll just, as, as long as I can, I will continue <laughs> doing that. Um, but as I say, I'm also writing something else as well, because I think it's useful to have several irons in the fire and not commit yourself to only one project because that one project may well be knocked back Mm. and we all know how that feels and how difficult it is to pick yourself up after a rejection Mm. um so I try to always have a couple of things on the go at any one time so that if it all backfires on one of them I have at least got something else you know and don't you know Mm. 
bump into a, a depression. D- d- does does that get any easier as you as you go along? Because obviously, when you certainly when you're <laughs> when you're um, doing the, going through the submissions process or whatever, it can be quite disheartening to get rejection, 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 and then you know four books, you know three books in as you are. Is it? Does the pain? Does it still hurt as much when? I'm really sorry to say that it does. Actually. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, that's not what you wanted, but that's not everyone's experience. You know, the sales of my first two weren't great, and you're, you know, you're only as good as your sales, basically. Yeah. So that made it, um, you know, more complicated for me. I think if you've, you know, you had a debut that's been la- launched well, you might in a better position. But I don't think that that hatred of the rejection goes away and I don't think there's any writer however successful who doesn't experience some form of of rejection or or Mm let down and it always does it always hurts because it is you know it is a business but it is also something very very personal to us that we put our everything into um and you know it hurts if there's silence or rejection and I'm afraid (laughs) that process hasn't really got that much easier for me um, and I wish I could be more resilient to be honest I wish I could not care because mm. I do think I do think as I've said that it's about luck and and timing and it you know if you get rejections it isn't necessarily to do with the quality of your work it might well just be because you're not writing what is the flavor of the month that month mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I can't say it gets much easier although I think I do think that initial submitting to agents and getting knocked back I do think that is really hard because you don't know yet that you're a good writer you haven't yeah. had kind of confirmed in any way um apart from maybe your mum telling you she likes it <laughs> <laughs> so that can be particularly crushing I think and I know you know as I say I know a lot of writers who are still there many years down the line and after writing many books and um so maybe it does get slightly better, but it's it's always there. I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, I mean, your your first novel, The Unseeing, it was well received, and I know you say it moved it sell as well as you'd have hoped, but you know, it, it won an Edgar Award in the US, nominated for the Historical Writers Association Award in the UK. You know, I mean, it was. It oh, yeah. did get. It was recognised as being a good book. Yes, it was. That must be nice validation. And my mum said nice And your mum liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what my dad said about it? He said, at least it didn't make me go to sleep like my philosophy books do. Oh, what a a compliment. That's that five stars, I think, is it? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's that's the quote you want in the cover. (laughs) 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 Uh, No, you're right. It was was critically well-received. It was very well-reviewed. You know, won a big award in the US. Um, so absolutely, and, and and that and you know at the time that that was very important to me. But unfortunately, in this business, you are judged more on your sales. Certainly, yeah. maybe not in literary fiction, but in you know if you're writing genre type fiction mm-hmm. and especially mm-hmm. crime, then they do expect you to sell. And if you don't, then it then it becomes trickier. Unfortunately, and and your your latest book is. Uh, as you mentioned, The Clockwork Girl, which is set in 18th century Paris. So it is another historical novel. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, this book took me a million years to write. Um, I uh, started writing it, I think, well, I got the idea for it, I think in 2017, um, because I've always had a slight obsession with automata, with moving clockwork 
uh, animals and and humans and I um, started researching about automata and one of the centres of excellence for automata in the 18th century was Paris so I decided I was going to set it there because at the time I thought well that would be great I'll get to go on lots of holidays to Paris <laughs> did I know that Covid was coming <laughs> and I would be able to go once but anyway uh, and then when I was researching that I came across the scandal of the vanishing children of Paris which is when in 1750 children just start going missing from the streets and no one knows who or what is taking them and various stories grow up uh, around this and about what might be going on so the the clockwork girl is is based partly on that and is partly sort of my own invention and it's follows the lives of three different women one of whom is a uh, former prostitute turned police spy in the house of a master clockmaker the second of whom is the clockmaker's daughter um, Veronique, who's an apparently naive young girl. Um, and the third is Madame de Pompadour, who is Louis XV's most famous mistress. And through her, we get to see the splendour and corruption of Versailles. So it's it's a sort of historical mystery. Um, but yes, as I said, it sort of straddles the Gothic and crime um, with, with, with a few elements of magic thrown in as well. So... Yeah, but it, it wasn't a particularly easy novel to write. And I'm so, but that makes it all the more thrilling to be able to hold the finished thing in my hands. And, and they, as I say, they've made it look very beautiful. Michaela Kaina, the um, designer, has given it a beautiful cover. So, yeah, it's a, it's a gorgeous looking book. And it's one yeah. I've been reading the last few nights. And it's, it's, it's excellent. And it has that, as you kind of brushed on there, it has a really nice melding of, um, a really cool historical true story of these missing kids, you know, in the, the the chat amongst everyone's not sure what, what's happening. You've got that kind of mystery running through, which is which is true, and then you've got that kind of um, made up story, kind of me- melded with it, and it, which and it's a really nice mix. And and the 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 setting of it is is um, is almost as part of the as big a part of the book as the story is. And and you know, people people always say plot and character are the things you have to balance, but it feels like in this one, setting is just as important. Yeah, I mean, setting is always very important to me, and I, but I think that's probably true of most historical novels because you have to make sure that you're putting the mm-hmm. um, you're putting the reader in your own world. I mean, maybe that's true of all genres, to be honest. You have to create your own world, don't you? You have to create your own world in which the reader is going to believe. Um, but for me, it's very important, in, maybe because it's sort of touching on the gothic, that the atmosphere should be all pervasive. And yes, as you say, almost a character in its own right, um, in the way that it is in Daphne du Maurier's work. I wanted yeah. to that sort of, you know, the sort of dark and stinking streets of Paris against the ridiculous opulence of Versailles. It definitely has that feel to it. I, I, can, I can totally get that. Now, now now, you've said that, I can. it's yeah, very, very similar to that, actually, yeah. Uh, uh, and what, what what comes first then when you're, when you're writing something like that? Is it is it the setting? Is it finding that that, that voice in that, particular world or or is it the story or does it do bits of it all sort of float around until it all clicks together for you because as i was saying i've just started i've come up with a very vague idea for another novel and i'm trying to remember how to write a novel i think i think what it comes down to is i start off with a very vague notion of the sort of novel that i want to write and that might be that might be um 
so in, in this case it was automata and that creepy that i mm-hmm. you know that idea of something being real but not real that idea that's what i started with and that you know mm-hmm. what is it about automata that, that that makes them so creepy and yet compelling that's what i started with and then everything else and then when i found the the vanishing children story mm-hmm. that then became part of it um with the next novel i'm novel i'm waiting to hear back from my editor um on with bated breath uh, i see more of <laughs> rejection <laughs> and it, uh, is a is a sort of ghost story set in fascist Italy. I'm trying to remember, how did that start? I think in that case, I knew I wanted to write about the rise of fascism. I knew that that was something I wanted to write about. And I knew I wanted to write something ghosty. And then I started researching um, the supernatural and also fascism. And I came across a quote about how poltergeists and fascism were similar in that they both fed upon the energies of the young to cause destruction and that's where i got my idea yeah i really liked that so that's that's what it's about essentially um so that's how that came about but then you know various complicated go initially i thought should i said it in germany and i thought no italy makes more sense because i'm half italian i at least can read some italian whereas german i would be struggling um and i feel like i have a bit more authority to write something set in rome although again i still haven't been able to go so i'm going to easter thank goodness um so that was how kind of how that one came about and then for the one that i've literally just started on i knew i wanted to write something set in blitz britain that was what i was really interested in and i'm not going to give up too much away about it because this is all you know it's so it's yeah. an that I haven't even discussed it with my editor um but I, I then sort of worked out what the setting would be and it's a kind of and that's another cre- slightly creepy gothic setting and I'm now trying to work out and again I know it's going to be a, a, a mystery but I'm now trying to work out who the protagonist is and what exactly the mystery is so I think I think some writers always start some I was who is it who's telling me that they start off with the first line they always have the first line of the story or they might have the ending I never have anything that clear I just have a very vague notion of the the sort of idea that I want to um the sort of novel I want to write and then I go and I do a huge and unnecessary amount of research um that's easier than writing the book and then I try and come up with the the idea and the character well I I, I was going to ask about that because um it strikes me that writing historical fiction does require a, a larger burden on the research side of things than, than certainly probably than contemporary fiction. I suppose science fiction, there might be a lot of research there as well, depending on how grounded you want it to be. But is that, is that a process that you enjoy doing? Is that why? Or, or, and did you grow up reading historical fiction? What is it about that type of fiction that, that attracts you? Yeah, I love the research. I find the research absolutely fascinating. And I find it far easier than writing the bloody book. So basically, <laughs> part of the reason. But I also, yes, I read a lot of historical, I, I read a, a huge amount of historical fiction. Um, but then I've always, you know, I've always read sort of lots of genre. That's kind of a slightly sad thing about becoming a writer in that you become sort of that's what people then said yeah. like oh right she likes historical fiction we'll send mm-hmm. her historical fiction when in fact i like all sorts of things but then you think oh i have to read this now which is obviously lovely i mean I, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not objecting to people sending me free books i'm very much <laughs> i'm just like sending me a bigger variety of free books because <laughs> i read a lot of non-fiction as well um 
but yes the research bit of it is 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 wonderful and and it kind of i it helps me form the idea and create the stories as i say i've been writing this contemporary novel and i found that i had to plot it out in a lot more detail than i have my previous ones and i think i don't know i think in some ways i found it harder because with historical fiction you know that you're not writing about reality and you know mm-hmm. that people aren't really expecting you to. You know, you might get someone complaining. You do get people complaining. You've got something wrong historically. But if you're writing about, you know, real life, that's that's kind of harder in a way. I didn't think it would be, but in some ways it is. And, I'm, and I, I somehow find it easier. Maybe I'm from centuries past, but I somehow found it easier to find my voice with historical fiction. Whereas with modern fiction, I'm like, well, is it me? Am I, is it supposed to be my voice? Whose voice am I writing <laughs> here? So, um the world building as well is interesting because obviously in historical fiction like you said before you're wanting to take the reader to that place and in a way you do have maybe a bit more leeway to build up that world in in your voice and your way whereas if she set something in the contemporary in contemporary times then you still have to create a world for the reader but it it's you're more constricted in a way I suppose exactly it has to gel with their world Mm -hmm. um and it has to be I remember (laughs) I remember um seeing someone on a train reading a friend's crime book and I this was the early days when I still found that I mean it's still exciting but it was extremely exciting to me at that point so I went over and said oh are you enjoying it because that's my friend and she said well actually she said something here about a train station there is no train station (laughs) (laughs) what is wrong with these people (laughs) <laughs> I remember well, st- we, you know people are gonna pick that sort of thing up all the time and they do want what the world yeah. you're constructed to fit yeah. with the world they know so it is a in a way a trickier process yeah we had Stephen Graham Jones in the podcast and he told us he'd written this book uh, and someone had bothered to write him I think it was a letter even it wasn't even an email had, had written a letter about how the guy got to a junction and wound down his window in his car or something, and uh, he he had been very uh, irate about the fact that that type of car doesn't have wind down windows or something. <laughs> what well, felt the need to tell the author? You get those people important. with historical fiction. So I remember this is when I stopped. I, I made a decision to stop reading my Goodreads reviews at this point. <laughs> when when my second book, The Storykeeper, came out, and someone had done an early review in which they said I'd made several errors. And it was things like, it was something to do with elderberries, one of them. One of them, <laughs> one of them was that I'd got several locations in Sky wrong, which it turned out I hadn't, but obviously I went off into a panic about it. Yeah. And the other was that some, something about the level at which elderberries grow. <laughs> and then I went and checked and she got it wrong. So I just thought, this is it. I'm going to stop reading Goodreads. I mean, that actually, that, that's a good point. And, and there's the whole kind of argument about... Um, you know, accuracy versus authenticity in historical fiction. And what in what's your view on, is it important to get the details right or is it important to get the story right? You know, what's... what's the feel of the, the time. feel of it, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Like, like you know, for me, I, I personally, I think I would rather have it feel right, even though if I've put someone in the wrong city or something, it's not historically accurate, but it doesn't impede the flow, the story keeps going, it's everything works. Or would you, or is that like... 
the worst thing in the world to you? Does everything have to be? No, no, I, I kind of agree with you. I think you know historical writers have different views on this. I mean, I I try not to have any anachronisms in my book, but actually mm-hmm. sometimes things that are not anachronisms look like anachronisms. So I remember in the Unseeing, I had the nineteenth century spelling of sofa, which was I can't remember what it was. But it was correct. But they were like, this looks anachronistic. So I had to take it out. And there were a few things like that, that you, what you what you really want is to make sure that nothing jolts your reader out. Yeah. of story, That nothing yeah. makes them stop and think, hang on a second, is this world, is this world real? You know, you want them to be concentrating on the story. So I try and get it as, as accurate as I can. But then really, my focus is telling a story, not, you know, I'm not writing to educate people about history. And mm. And both of, well, actually all three of my novels were inspired by real crimes, but I haven't stuck with the real, you know, the real details of the case, because as we've established, I tried that with my first one and it was quite dull. So <laughs> so with, with each one, so with the first, with the unseeing, I took it away from, from the real story to a certain extent. With the second one, I decided to take it completely. My second novel was based on the West Ham vanishings of the late 19th century. And I took that away from London altogether and put it on the Isle of Skye and, and, and you know, developed a different story. And then, of course, with the vanishing children of Paris, I've actually worked more with the, the urban legends that sprung up around mm. that story more than I have um, with the real facts. Yep. So I can't say that I've been true to history there, but I have hopefully created a story that you know people will want to read so it is a difficult one and you know some historical writers believe very strongly that you should never deviate from historical fact and that you should you know that you're misleading right readers if you do that but I kind of think people are not reading my books because they want to be educated about 18th century Paris they're reading my book yeah. want to escape into a different world um, uh, uh, yeah I, I think it can depend on the type of story it is as well and the voice you know it's that the novel will establish itself pretty early on and certainly i've read some historical fiction that clearly is trying to adhere quite strictly to what actually ha- or what is yeah. supposedly actually happened whereas other ones is clearly playing more fast and loose but it's okay because the whole tone of the story is you know it's a more maybe modern a type of story put in that yeah. t- setting and it works well because of I, that. I think that's, I mean, that's what took me a while to work out. But yes, yeah, certainly with historical fiction, maybe with all fiction, you have to set your own rules. You have to mm-hmm. see yeah. what kind of novel am I writing and what rules am I keeping to? And I was kind of joking about Alias Grace and Margaret Atwood, but actually what I was trying to do with The Unseeing when I set out was to follow the rules that she had set for herself in Alias Grace, which she says in her... Um, afterward to the book she says that she basically only deviated from the historical record where there were gaps you know where there were gaps then mm-hmm. she felt free to invent but otherwise she stuck completely to the record which is what I tried to do originally but it just didn't work mm-hmm. a because I'm not Margaret Atwood and b because maybe that particular case just didn't lend itself to a uh, an easy storytelling so I think yeah. you but I was so hamstrung by the the reality and the truth of the situation in a kind of loyally way that I found it very difficult to write that book. So for the, and that partly is why for the story keeper, I just took it away from the setting mm. together and said, okay, well, this is now my own story. Yeah. I'm telling yeah. it in the way I'm, I'm telling it. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think 
one of the, the things I always keep coming back to in my head about this kind of stuff is like the Sherlock Holmes movies, the the recent ones. Yeah. Like they are. Yeah, I would never watch them and think I'm going to learn what London was like back then. Like you know, I they're, they're, they feel like a modern film. Yeah. Very fast paced and quippy, etc. Yeah. But just set in this, and it's almost like a window dressing, and it's part of the mm. the set pieces, etc. But I don't feel like it's 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 so. It has, I don't its get, place. has its own place, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think it's fair to criticise that film, for instance, because it's not historically accurate. Like it, it feels like that's not the point of yes, the film. Yes, because it doesn't pretend to be. It doesn't set itself up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. It doesn't. You know, yeah. it's entertainment. Yeah. Whereas, whereas you read something like the Cicero trilogy by Robert Harris, and that does feel like he spent about twenty years researching what everyone said. He writes them quite quickly, though. Actually, I read an interview. I've never understood how he does it so fast. He, he he writes them distressingly quickly. I mean, I know he's got another job because he is a world famous author. I remember he basically tries to write them within a year. It's nuts. It's really amazing. Like it, he writes yeah. historical fiction of his calibre. Um, but again, we cannot judge ourselves by the standards of Robert Harris. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. So, well, so what well, is your? Oh, sorry. oh, sorry. I was just going to ask. I think exactly the same question you were, Tara, which is, um, what what is your actual process? Like, do you sit down and plot out a book? It sounded like with the historical fiction, not so much. But yeah, how how do you go well, about writing these things? Well, I st- I've sort of grown to because the unseeing took me such a long time to write, and I got sort of I got it so wrong basically. But then I think maybe we all do when we're writing our first book because we're working yeah. how to write, aren't we? Um, so for my second one, I did. So for my first one, I didn't really plot it out at all. I had a synopsis, um, but I didn't really plot it. The second one, I did have a sort of vague plot outline <clears throat> for the Clockwork Girl. I did m- far more detailed plot outline but actually then ended up deviating from it quite a bit because I changed the ending and then as I for, for this thriller I'm writing I have plotted it out very carefully but I think that's partly a confidence thing I think I partly have to know what I'm writing because I feel like I don't know what I'm doing um so whether when I actually write the novel I will actually stick to the plot line mm. I don't know I don't I mean how do you two do it do you plot it out in detail not too much detail I've We've chatted about this before, and I, I too much plotting takes the fun out of it a little bit for me. Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, I like to know where I'm going, I suppose, um, but not too, not too many road marks or whatever on the way. I gotta want to kind of be a bit surprised as I go to get to where yeah, I know I'm going. I would agree, and actually, that was what Kate Moss said as well. Actually, the writer rather than the model, she said that she doesn't like to plot it too much because, yeah, she finds she loses her excitement in the book. She has to be excited by what's coming next as well, and I think there's. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that, um, and maybe why I deviate from my own plots. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I I think it probably is the 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 lawyer in me, but I I, um, I find myself having to plot. You know, I like to have a plot, like to know where I'm going. I will deviate from it when I end up writing it, but I do like to have some sort of idea. And if something, you know, I'm quite bad at sort of getting myself in a sort of logic loop of saying wait if this happens how can that happen and I get yeah. stuck on a small point that in fact I should be writing past sometimes I think. But do um, you use an Excel spreadsheet like Abbey Mukherjee? No no I don't use an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. <laughs> well, she does that. I use a page one notebook. 
Of course. <laughs> <laughs> what a setup! What an excellent setup question there. Excellent. <laughs> I'm looking. At, well, obviously, as soon as I start using that, that will be <laughs> that, that'll be the solution to it. I recommend to all writers. <laughs> um, and when you when you've written your book, uh, are you someone that? has quite a clean first draft or are you revising it a lot no, after that? A massive poo. My first draft <laughs> is always really, and that's, and I've actually started writing faster in the knowledge that whatever I write in the first draft will be wrong anyway. So I might as well, I kind of, someone described it as sort of creating the clay with which you're going to mold your sculpture. Mm-hmm. So now I do the first draft relatively quickly Um knowing that I'm still sort of working out the story at that stage and I'm going to have to go over it. I mean, people, I remember talking to Joseph Knox about it and he says that he does very little editing, actually. He just manages to write it perfectly the first time. Wouldn't that be good? If you- <laughs> That's yeah. the dream. That, that that is the dream. Wrote a novel, I don't believe that. Good. I don't believe anyone that says that. That sounds yeah. like nonsense to me. <laughs> do you, is that, do you do rough first drafts? Oh, my first draft total vomit. It's just, it, as you see though, it's, it's just, that for me, the first draft's the hardest part. Like getting it, getting yeah. it down. It's that total, you know, it's that kind of classic twenty thousand words. This is the best thing anyone's ever written. And then that horrible, like this is actually, it's actually the worst thing anyone's ever written for about the yeah. next forty thousand words. And then in the end, you think, oh, it's maybe okay. And then pushing through that horrible doubt phase, and then and then just having some space to go back to it a month later and see actually it's not as good or as bad as I thought it was. But there's stuff here I can build on, and then yes. get it closer to the image I have in your head. By yeah, the time that, you've done seventh yeah, draft, whatever. Sounds yeah. like we have similar kind of processes: vomit, poo, <laughs> <laughs> just horrible bodily horrible fluids, fluids, basically. Bodily. Yeah. <laughs> but I, did, I did, yeah, I, but that I agree with you. I find the first draft the hardest part, just actually getting the work. I, I now use Scrivener um, as well as mm. a page notebook, um, <laughs> which I find particularly useful because you could set yourself targets and I find mm-hmm. maybe again yes. it's a lawyer in me but I like knowing like this is when I have to have it done this is how many words I have to have done and then if I hit it you know I get this a special warm feeling even if it's a total load of nonsense um whereas if I don't set myself a target then I, I'll just go back I just go back to the beginning and start correcting it which doesn't really get yeah. anywhere yeah and definitely, I think as well, what is important is giving yourself that little bit of time before you go back over what you've written. I've been doing it recently, and I'm amazed by how much I can chop out of a story and still keep the the flow of the. Or, you know, I'll improve the flow of the story, and I'm not missing anything important. But when I was writing it, I was like this. This has to be in here. This this is very important. But in fact, no. You're telling yourself the story at the beginning, aren't you? You're telling yourself the story, Mm -hmm. and then when you go back over it, you're kind of working out what people actually need to know in order to understand what's going on. Yeah, that's exactly. In particular, it's very important that you don't sort of use words that aren't necessary. So you have to really cut it back. Um, I mean, I tend to always write a prologue that never gets used. I don't know why. (laughs) Spend ages on a prologue, and then I think actually, I don't really need that. Well, that's an interesting yeah. one because prologues, we were chatting about that just uh, this, this afternoon. Like, you know, I mean, I like a prologue because it kind of, you get a little injection of, like, a kind of, it's like a cold open on a, t- yeah. like a TV show, isn't it? You kind of get a little something, something here which you'll come back to and it gives you a bit of an impetus to keep, right, to keep reading because you want to find out what that was about. But a lot of people don't like them at all. 
I know some people are really anti-prologue and I think they're wrong because I, I think actually prologues can be, as you say, they can be really effective, especially in crime novels where you mm-hmm. want to, you want to know what kind of novel you're reading and you want to, you want the suspense, but you also don't want to start right in the action. Um, so they can work really well. For some reason, I just never managed to, yeah, I, I, I often end up cutting them out or even cutting out the first chapter because you actually don't need as much setup as you think yeah. you do. Yeah. Well, yeah. going back to what you were saying, I think I think when you're writing it, I, I find a prologue is my own way into the story. It's what gets me excited for writing the story because often it'll be that spark. It's that thing that I'm going, oh, this would be a nice beginning. And it will get you into the story. And then when you go back to it, you're right, sometimes you can say, actually, I don't need any of that. I'll cut it. I've set it all up now with the rest yeah. of the novel but then you yeah. can use it by saying sign up to my newsletter and get yeah exactly yeah <laughs> that's a great <laughs> idea yeah exactly but it's true though i mean everything you write you chop out and then you add into another draft or a different book and it's all nothing's ever thrown away is it so everything you write it's always if it's good writing it might not fit the book and that i suppose is the difficult part of realizing what yeah. is best for the book um you're you're so you've you've got the clockwork girl coming out um, you've got another historical novel that is well. It sounds like you've got two. Yeah, plans. I've got. So I've got. Yeah. yeah, so I've got two in this contract, um, mm-hmm. and then I'm writing. I started a, another historical and and a modern one. And it's interesting the the modern one because one thing that we've had with with guests before, especially crime writers, is that they often get told essentially. <laughs> by uh, agents or their publishers that you know you you need to keep writing in this you need to write this type of story because that's what readers expect from you so jumping between these things isn't always encouraged um but... yeah yeah i wondered actually whether i would need a new name Matt mm-hmm. Zeller, maybe yeah. but um but my agent said that if i'm writing in a different genre then actually i can just keep my usual name although I might decide to call myself something else just for the hell of it Um, (laughs) but I think yeah I I guess if you're if you're immensely successful in one genre then why not just carry on writing in that that genre but (laughs) I'm not in that position I'm trying all sorts of things like I'm just I intend to be a debut for the rest of my life and a different name every time just yeah although I, I like the idea of taking a different name for each each different genre and then you can sort of tweet about have you read Anna Matsula's latest uh, Just a massive self-conversation yeah, exactly, yeah. 12 people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that might, I think people might see through that. I don't know. <laughs> but I, it, don't know. I, do really, I do really love writing historical. So I, I, I'm thinking that, you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't, you know, do brilliantly, I'm, I'm just going to have to pretend to be, to everyone, that I'm someone else altogether. <laughs> <laughs> just fake, fake your death and just restart just fake, life. Yeah. Just, yeah. just come back as someone else. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Make yourself look like a famous author. That's what I would do. Yes. Yes. Okay. Good. That's a great idea. Yeah, Actually, I, might, my, I might try it with Stephen King. My friend. Well, my um, my husband's got a colleague called Stephen King. I keep trying to get a quote from him. It would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a brilliant that idea. One. Yeah, that's an excellent idea. Nobody would know. It's, it's, it's you're not you're not telling a lie. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Um, so going going forward, what you know. Obviously, right now you're working and writing at the same time. I, I assume your goal would be to toss the law and just write full time, or would you always like to have your hand in the law world? No, 
I think I'd always like to carry on with the law, actually, in some respect, because I I work um, for victims of crime. That's what I specialise in. Um, And I'm kind of really committed to that work and find it really interesting. So I've actually cut down, I've cut back on taking on new cases just because I've got too much writing at the moment. I'm still giving training um, to other advocates. But no, I kind of, I'd always like to carry on in some capacity doing some law firstly because I think it's really interesting um, and important work but also because I think I would probably go bananas if I was just a writer I mean I am bananas anyway but more bananas if I was just right because I was you know writing is such a publishing is such an arbitrary business Mm -hmm. and often such a fair business that I kind of and you also don't have any colleagues I mean obviously it's lovely to speak to other writers and it's been really lovely speaking to you too but you don't get to Go into an office and no, totally. That's that's the thing I've missed most in lockdown has been just the office chat, and it's not really the same over Zooms or Teams and stuff. And I, you know, and just asking a question or having a cup of tea and that kind of banter and the chatter. That that's the thing I miss the most. The the job itself, but you know, I miss actually the the chat with people. (laughs) (laughs) You just want to hang about the office. Want to hang around and chat, but I think we just go back. I just quit my job and go back and just have a cup of tea in the kitchen. it sounds really naff but also being part of a team like in, obviously you are to an extent when you're writing because you've got your agent and your editor and publicist and, and, and actually I have felt with Orion that it is really a team and they have been great but it's not the same thing as going in and working on a case with a bunch of people and mm-hmm. it's you know it's a different process so now ideally I'd like to keep both going um, but it just means I have to get rid of the children basically <laughs> <laughs> And uh, when, for our listeners, when is the Clockwork Girl out? The Clockwork Girl is out the 3rd of March, but you can pre-order now from all good bookshops, or bad bookshops as well. Yeah, any any, (laughs) any type of bookshop. Literally anyone. (laughs) What was the last book that you read? Oh, well, uh, the book I've just, obviously now I can't remember what it's got called, so I'm going to have to look on my phone. Do you find that when you read books on Kindle, yep. you forget what they're called? But it's basically the diary. This sounds really, it sounds like it's going to be really macabre and dull, but it was absolutely fascinating. It's the diary of a pathologist's assistant during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, let me find it. Sorry about this. Murder on the Home Front, it's called. And it's absolutely fascinating. It's, um, yes, this pathologist assistant, so she's talking about various murders that took place in the 1940s, but also just what life was like during the 1940s. And she's really funny. She's just a naturally funny person and also a very good writer. So I absolutely love that. What else have I read recently that's been great? Um, I mean, I t- I, to be honest, I'm a bit of a book tart. I tend to read lots of things at the same time. Mm. Do you do that? Mm. I've just started reading um, The Distant Dead by Leslie Thompson, which is another Blitz murder book and which is brilliant so far. Um, and I'm also reading all sorts of weird political things. I've just read um, Reputation by Sarah Vaughan, which I think is also out on the 3rd of March, so I shouldn't be promoting it, but it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> enjoyed anatomy of a scandal that's absolutely brilliant and i've been and um, yeah i've been reading lots of true crime books about uh the 1940s and i also have read a fascinating book called putin's people which turned out mm. to be very timely Topical. Uh, which is really really interesting about 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 him and his cronies essentially and how he came to be 
the way he is. Um, and it's by people telling him every day that he is God's gift to mankind. And apparently if you do that to someone, then they grow to believe it. <laughs> Sounds like a similar technique that Trump must have used, I think. Yeah, I, don't, I think so. I think they're, they're, yeah, definite similarities, but Putin is smart. That's the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's a difference. Actually, there's it? lots of stuff in there about his interactions with Trump and how he basically just used KGB tactics on Trump to make him go along with what he was saying. <laughs> Um, so yeah, quite that a frightening, interesting, but really fascinating. And then I've I've read um, some fantastic proofs that I've been sent recently. Um, Beth Underdown's Lock and the Key, which is a definitely De Maurier kind of inspired nice. 19th century Cornwall novel, which, which is really haunting um, and beautifully, beautifully written. Um, what else? I can't remember. I just write, read about a million things at the same time. But at the moment, it's all 1940s. So have you got any yeah. 1940s recommendations for me? <laughs> None jumped to my head, I have to say. <laughs> Isn't it? A bit niche. Uh, what about the last film that you watched? Well, the last film that I watched was on the plane, and it was Time to Die, the Bond film. Oh, yeah, yeah. I enjoyed it. No. Well, I loved the beginning. I thought the beginning was absolutely brilliant. In Italy, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, the, the girl on the ice. I thought it started Oh, off that bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I loved that beginning. That was re- a real crime thriller beginning, wasn't it? The, the it was actually a quite low-key opening the, for a Bond film, yeah. Yeah, um, and I absolutely loved that, and I thought it was brilliant. But I, just to be honest, by the end, maybe I was just tired. I got a bit bored of it. I was like, oh, there was so much chat. Oh, my- <laughs> chat. I wasn't really that interested. I just, I don't know. I, I guess oh. one has their own expectations of what a Bond film is going to be. And I'm kind of controvert. I'm sort of Bond agnostic. I, I never, I always think they're going to be better than they are Casino Royale was the last yeah. one that I really properly enjoyed that's probably yeah that was brilliant that's excellent yeah. I, I did like Skyfall a lot um, I didn't I didn't really expect her at all but no I did like No Time to Die I thought it was felt a little bit different than Craig's previous Bond stuff and I was quite I mean I was getting I'm getting a little bit I was getting a little bit bored of Craig's Bond and kind of Super serious. I kind, of, I kind of want them to go back to a bit more campy fun, more gadgets. Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan Rosner. type stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. That is a, but bear in mind, that by the end of the film, I did have the seven-year-old vomiting into the paper. Yeah, yes, so maybe I, I would watch it again, maybe in a quiet room. <laughs> <laughs> but I did also watch, on the flight out, I watched the whole of The Mayor of East Town. Oh, that's oh, brilliant. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. It's so brilliant by the end. It started yeah, quite pressing at the beginning, isn't it? But by the end, I was completely hooked. I was like, I can't sleep. There will be no yeah. sleep. Like I would just yeah. be watching. Yeah. Myself and my wife sat down. At, I think it was probably at seven pm or something one night and said, "Right, let's watch a couple of episodes," and then stayed up and watched the whole series in one go. <laughs> okay, so that. you and I basically did the same yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. I, I was terrible. I did skim some of the bits uh, at the beginning, but yeah, by the end, it was just yeah, punch, punch, punch. It was really brilliant. Really nice. Yeah, Kate Winslet, I thought was just phenomenal. Like really down low, played it low key, but just really. F- it felt like a real character, not just like an actor playing a role. Almost. Yeah, no, she she was absolutely brilliant. And the only thing that really bothered me was her highlights because uh, <laughs> someone who I get her highlights, I was like, how can she have bad roots throughout the entire series? Like, at some point, she must have to dye her hair. Like that, I, that was the only point that bothered me. But otherwise, brilliant. Well, the, the very, very last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. So I always say there's no right answer apart from one. But we'll start with um, Elizabeth McNeil or CJ Sansom. Elizabeth McNeil. Uh, TV or cinema? TV. Night Owl or Early Bird? Night Owl. Um, fancy restaurant or takeaway? 
fancy restaurant. And the last one, real book or ebook? How many booksellers do you have? I love real books, but I tend, because my eyesight is deteriorating with age, I tend to read a lot of stuff on Kindle. But don't tell, don't tell. No, me. no, no, that's the correct answer. That's the, that's, that's that's the answer Tara called. I'm doing really well this season. I've had more guests saying yeah. ebook, I think, than ever before. This is it. But sure our time's come. That. Our time has come. This is, this is an uprising of ebook. But obviously, all, all listeners should buy books in hardback rather than this. They should buy both, surely, and the yes. audiobook as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've said this a number of times now, but I really think you buy a hardback book, it's more expensive. You should get the ebook for free with it as a little. Uh, incentive to buy it, you know, you have you could so you could have the hardback on your shelf, untouched, yeah. uncreased, and then you could read the ebook version. It's going to work out that well for us. <laughs> no, it's maybe <laughs> we're cannibalizing our own sales. Yeah, I don't think I don't think this is something we're going to. Hey, publishers, why not just give away our books for free? <laughs> <laughs> just, just don't pay us. Don't book anything anymore. Never mind about the ninety nine p. I think it'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how Tarek works in the yeah. book, bookmarking. <laughs> Well, thanks very much to Anna for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed that chat. And I thought it was interesting what she was saying about how it can be difficult if, if you, you know, if you don't write a, a very specific genre, if you don't, mm-hmm. if your book isn't clearly a crime novel, but it has elements of other things, or if it's not clearly a science fiction novel and it has elements of other things, it can be difficult to find that agent or find that publisher that's going to take a chance on you because... Yeah they're looking at the market all the time and it is a business and they're quite a risk averse business as well, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. And it's a a point that I think you made either in this episode or another one we've recorded, which is that the publishing world wants it shots, but wanting new stuff and new voices and new um, uh, reading and new new books, etc. And the reality is it doesn't really want anything too new. It wants something which is, kind of safe maybe with a little bit of a twist or something so just yeah. just new enough to to say that it's new but not too new that it alienates people they don't know how to market it and until they see that 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 type of story yeah, and, and works so and then they want that's yeah. all they want yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's such a it's almost a backwards like a tail wagging the dog like it's just if you feel like it's the wrong way around it's up to the author to prove rather than the publisher saying let's stand behind it and push it you know yeah, and I do wonder if it's something that is going to change the more self-publishing grows yeah. and obviously there's more small presses. And, mm-hmm. for example, with a recent guest we had on, Tasmina Perry was talking about having her own imprint. Yep. So, there, you know, there are more ways to get different types of stories out there. And I wonder if that will eventually change the market and make it more accessible to stories I that don't so. neatly yeah. fit into a specific category. I mean, we're seeing more and more of the big, the big publishers merge as well. So mm-hmm. I think the, I'd like to think that the, the, the reaction to that will be more and more alternative presses, small presses, self-publishing and all that kind of stuff taking, taking up some of the slack or, 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 or and that's where you'll see much of the innovation, I think, in, in terms of the stories that are coming up for sure. Definitely. Well, um, as I say, thanks very much to Anna for, for taking the time to come onto the podcast. The Clockwork Girl is just out. We'll put a link in our uh, podcast description so that you can uh, go and get that. Or, of course, you can go and pick it up from your local bookshop. Yep. And uh, now we're on to the small matter of 
Episode Eps- 100. Yes, indeed. Wow. Which is a milestone we genuinely never thought we'd reach. So um, thank you if you're a listener that's that's been there from the start and, and put up with us every week <laughs> uh, chatting to... I'm sure it's for the guests that you're tuning in. But uh, yeah, even so... skip over our chat every time. Yeah, exactly. Even so... No one's listened to this, but <laughs> even so, uh, we appreciate... We appreciate you hanging around, um, and actually, that's a good point for me to be, to do my usual plug of if you enjoyed the episode, uh, please do rate and review us because um, it really helps us continue to get great guests on the podcast, and we'd love to keep doing this. And we have a very very special guest and a special episode next week. Yeah, next week we're chatting with the awesome Ian Rankin, and uh, we had a fantastic chat with them. Big crime author, I'm sure everybody under the sun knows who he is. Mm-hmm. Big crime author from Edinburgh, writes his Rebus novel set in Edinburgh. Um, and we do a, a really great chat with him. But not only is it a pod, an audio podcast, we also filmed it in a really fancy studio that's uh, run by the silent, silent partner, the boss man. Tim, <laughs> of the page, of page of the, one. page one. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a really great chat. Yeah, no, it is. It, it's a really great episode and it was really fantastic having the chance to speak with Ian in person so you can listen to it on the audio podcast as Tarek says or it will be on YouTube as well um, and obviously we'll tweet about that and, and everything just so you can get all the links to know how to tune into that one plus there is a very special competition yeah. to win a whole pile of books and your very own page one notebook so um, be sure to tune into next week's episode because there's a lot going on Three lucky winners are going to win a lot of books and some signed books by Mr. Rankin himself yes, as well. Yes, indeed. So very indeed. special prizes. Before I forget, if anybody would like to get in touch, they can always send us an email to at... No, that's the Twitter machine. They send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a tweet to at right underscore gear. But otherwise, um, have a great week and we will, or you will, actually be able to see us next week no. on the YouTube episode I apologise in advance for my <laughs> exactly. I put on some lockdown weight and I was quite sweaty <laughs> in the room so I'm going to apologise for that in advance <laughs> yeah but we hope you tune in for that one see you later see you later